looking out at the scoreboard. He can see 0, 0, 0, where it says San Diego. Now Doc Ellis comes down. He's on inside ball one, just off the bill of the cap. One ball of strike. The year is 1970. Doc Ellis is on the mound pitching for the Pittsburgh Pirates. He's got his cap on, his curls peeking out the side, and he's chewing a piece of bubblegum to a pulp. He's faced down batter after batter of the opposing San Diego Padres. And they haven't gotten a hit. Well, here we are in seventh inning. Doc Ellis working on a no-hitter. But Doc, he isn't exactly in his right mind. There were times when the ball was hit back at me. It looked big as a balloon, and then sometimes it looked small. On June 12th, 1970, 51 years ago this week, Doc Ellis was written into sports history as the pitcher who threw a no-hitter while tripping on LSD. She said, what's wrong with you? I said, I'm high as a Georgia person. <laughs> From Gimlet Media, this is Not Past It, a show about the stories we can't quite leave behind. I'm Simone Polanin. Every episode, we take a moment from that very same week in history and tell you the story of how it shaped our world. Today, we're revisiting this trippy day in baseball history to tell you about sports and drugs and the lengths we're willing to go to to avoid failure. That's coming up. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Um, I need you to say your name. And say my name is... My name is Doc Philip Ellis Jr., better known as the first militant of professional baseball. I love the way Doc introduces himself. I feel like I know all I need to know about who he is and how he carries himself in the world. But this is not my interview with Doc. It was broadcast on Weekend America in 2008. Doc was in his 60s. He passed away almost nine months later. And even in his older age, Doc comes off as a badass— Supposedly, when he gave this interview, he answered the door in a bathrobe. Who does that? There's no other way to put it. Doc was fucking cool. But even before that famous LSD no-no, as Doc's no-hitter would come to be called, for him, the relationship between sports and drugs was intertwined, even in the beginning. Growing up in Los Angeles, California, I knew about drugs. I had seen drugs and, and played around with them, and I knew what they, what they were. This was back in the early 60s, the Mad Men era. You know, back when they called weed dope and Bonanza was dominating Sunday night TV. Young Doc was growing up in L.A., and he remembers taking a handful of pills while playing basketball. I had dropped three or four Red Devils and drank a half a bottle of Thunderbird wine. And I laid the ball up, and that was the basket right in my face. I said, oh, man, I'm way up here. And everybody hollered, dunk it, Doc, dunk it. No matter what was in his system, it was clear. Doc was a natural athlete. And people began to take notice, especially when he was playing baseball. 
I'm 15, 16 years old playing with men and throwing the ball through, through the cement wall. They say, look at that youngster throw that ball. Let him keep on throwing it. And then at 18 in 1964, Doc signed a contract with the Pittsburgh Pirates and started playing with one of their minor league teams. But Doc didn't stop using drugs while playing professional baseball. He says smoking marijuana helped his game. Oh, 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 I can smoke dope and run all day long. They want me to run? Hell, I'll run all day. Give me a joint. Let me smoke a joint. And they used to have to say, go get Doc and tell him to stop running because I'd be high, I'd be tripping on running. Doc played in the minor leagues for five years until the spring of 1968 when he was called up to pitch for the Pirates in the majors. And he just played fine, nothing that exciting, until June of 1970, until that miraculous drug-induced game that would change his entire legacy, the LSD no-no game. But the story of that game actually starts a couple of days earlier when Doc realizes that he'll be pitching in San Diego and he'll be close to his hometown of L.A. I asked the manager, could I go home? Because we had an off day. And they normally let you go home if you're in the area. So he said, yeah. And Doc, he took this opportunity to let loose. So I took some LSD at the airport when I took off with the car because I knew where it would hit me. I'd be in my own, my little area, and I'd know where to go. Doc taking acid, it wasn't that out of the blue for him, or in general. Around that time, in the late 60s and early 70s, LSD had entered the mainstream with things like the Beatles song, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, the movie Easy Rider, and the book, The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test. So Doc took a hit when he landed in San Diego. Then he rented a car and drove to L.A., so that's how I got to uh, my friend's girlfriend's house. And she said, what's wrong with you? Some highs of Georgia Pine. <laughs> At some point during Doc's acid trip, he falls asleep for a nap. When he wakes up, he takes even more acid. But that nap was quite a bit longer than he thought. And his friend's girlfriend let him know. She told me, you better get up. You got to go pitch. I said, pitch? I pitch tomorrow. Hell, what are you talking about? Because I had got up in the middle of the morning and took some more acid. And she grabbed the paper, brought me the sports page, and showed me, boom. I said, oh, wow. What, what happened to yesterday? <laughs> Can you imagine waking up on a day that you think is your day off, only to find out that you need to be at work in a matter of hours? And work is in another city, in front of a crowd of thousands. So Doc says he races to the airport and flies from L.A. back to San Diego. He gets to the stadium, heads to the locker room. I was just trying to get to the ballpark, you know, and get dressed. Hurry up and get dressed and get out of people's way because I'm high as a kite. But before the game starts, Doc decides he needs a little pick-me-up. There was a lady down there in San Diego who used to always have the bennies for me, which is another stimulant. Bennies is slang for Benzedrine. It's an amphetamine. You know, speed. So I, I went out to the dugout and reached up because she was standing over the rail. She always stood over the rail and had a pretty little gold pouch. So I got the bennies, took them, 
my eyes was popped out of my head. And chewing that bubble gum like it would, like it would turn to powder. Doc is now amped up and heads straight for the pitching mound. And they say, well, you better go down here and warm up. So I said, oh, yeah, that's right. I had forgot you had to warm up. Well, here we are. The game begins. In the bottom of the first inning, Doc faces the Padres' leadoff batter. It's raining, a light misty rain, and the LSD is doing some weird things to his vision. When I was pitching, I didn't see the hitters. All I could tell was if they was on the right side or the left side. As far as seeing the target, the catcher put tape on his fingers so I could see the signals. When you take LSD, the normal rhythms of your brain get out of sync. It varies for every person, but it can sometimes lead to weird misperceptions and out-of-this-world hallucinations. And Doc seems to be getting a good dose of both. There were times when the ball was hit back at me. I jumped because I thought it was coming fast, but the ball was coming slow. And sometimes when it came back to me, it looked big as a balloon. And then sometimes it looked small. Doc is completely off in another world. At certain points, he thinks he's playing a different sport altogether. One time I covered first base. And I caught the ball, and I tagged the base all in one motion. I said, oh, I just made a touchdown. (laughs) But actually, you know, put a guy out at first base. Despite all of this, Doc is performing really well. And a couple of innings into the game, some of his teammates start to notice that the San Diego Padres have yet to get a hit. We had a rookie on the team at that particular time, and he sat next to me. And he kept saying, he said, you got a no-no going. I said, yeah, right. But I could also feel the pressure from other players wanting to tell him to shut up because that's a superstition thing where you're not supposed to say nothing if somebody's throwing a no-hitter because it's bad luck. So some of you may know this, but I had to look up what exactly a no-hitter is. In baseball, a hit is a technical term. It basically means that a batter hits the ball, no one catches it before it bounces, and they make it safely to base. So a no-hitter is when a pitcher pitches a complete game, all nine innings, without giving up a hit. There's never been a no-hitter tossed in this ballpark. But I'll tell you one thing, Doc knows he's got one. You'd have to have a head of concrete if you didn't know it. Come on, Doc, get it. You can pitch a no-hitter and have runners on base, though, if a batter gets walked or hit by a pitch, for example. And Doc, he was pitching all over the place. You know, I'm trying to get the batters out, and I'm throwing a crazy game. I'm hitting people, walking people, throwing balls in the dirt. They're going everywhere. One on a line drive to the right side. Maz dies. He's got it. Because I'm trying to figure out what the hell I'm going to do with all these runners on base. I had the base loaded two or three times. In the top of the seventh inning, the Pirates hit their second home run, putting them up 2-0. And it stays that way until the bottom of the ninth. Just three outs stand between Doc and victory. Doc Ellis on the no-hitter working to Chris Canizero, the leadoff batter in the bottom of the ninth inning here in San Diego. 
Once again, uh, Doc Ellis ready. Coming down with a fastball. Canizero swings and lifts a high fly ball into right to the field. Matty Lou getting over, getting under. He's got it and it's one away. One down. The next batter grounds out to first base. That's two down. Now they'll bring up Ed Spezio. Strike is called Ed Spezio. Doc Ellis on a no-hitter. Working away here to Spezio. No balls, one strike. Here's the check, the pitch, strike two, called. Spezio is yet to win the bat. Spezio standing in there. And Doc Ellis checks his sign, comes down. Strike three, they're going after him. He got it. They're mobbing Doc Ellis on a no-hitter. They're from all over the place. He got him on a strikeout. And we have now seen our first no-hitter of this year, and it comes to Doc Ellis. What a thrill for the young man, and what a thrill for our ball club. Doc is the only one that we know of to have thrown a no-hitter while on acid. Though it would be a decade before he told anyone that little detail. So what role did the LSD play that day? And what else was going on in Doc's world that led to his drug use? We'll get into all that after the break. Before the break, Doc Ellis threw a no-hitter while high on speed and tripping on acid. We heard how Doc experienced it, but what was actually going on inside his brain? What effect did the LSD have? It was the only non-hitter in his life. He obviously improved his performance, didn't it? <laughs> I think it's almost unquestionable. This is psychiatrist Dr. David Nutt. That's Nutt with two Ts. He's been pioneering research in neuropsychopharmacology at the Imperial College of London. And for the past decade, he's studied how LSD and other psychedelics work. He's familiar with Doc's no-hitter. It wasn't that it made him a better pitcher. It made him a very different pitcher. In his case, it clearly... Dr. Nutt says it made him unpredictable to his opponents. They didn't know what was going on, and they couldn't work out what the hell he was going to do because he didn't know what he was going to do. Remember, Doc was confused. One minute, he thinks he's playing football. Then another, he can't figure out what size the baseball is. But he was still able to pitch. Dr. Nutt says all that checks out. The interesting thing about LSD is it doesn't disrupt fundamental motor function like in pitching a baseball. What it would do was disrupt your ability to decide what kind of ball you were going to throw and, you know, what target you might have. And then there was the speed. If he hadn't been on the Benzedrine, he probably wouldn't have bothered to actually pitch at all. Doc had found the perfect drug cocktail to be both focused and unpredictable. But perhaps the most important thing that the LSD did was something much deeper for Doc. Dr. Nutt says it likely helped erase his fear. You can't think about failure because you're not thinking about, you know, your, your brain is not able to, to make that projection that you might fail. A fear of failure is something that Doc lived with constantly. And he says it's one of the reasons he turned to drugs. I was so used to medicating myself. That's the way I was dealing with the fear of failure. During Doc's days in the MLB, he was under a lot of pressure to perform. And he was scared. Scared of losing, scared of getting kicked out of the big leagues. You get to the major leagues and you say, I, I got to stay here. What do I need? Oh, yeah, I need some of this shit right here. Because this shit will get me going. 
The drugs distracted Doc from his insecurities. They made him feel invincible. It gives you that, that, uh, that feeling that you are at your top, top of your game. You like what they call in the zone now. Doc wanted to feel this way every game. While the LSD was a one-time thing, as far as we know, Doc was high on other drugs, mainly speed, for nearly every game of his career. He couldn't break the habit, even when he tried. I tried to pitch a game in San Francisco without being high, and it scared the hell out of me. I, I didn't even know how to wind up. Doc told one of his teammates that he didn't know what to do. He said, oh no, you need your medicine. <laughs> so I was, I ran all the way across the field to go get some greenies and loaded my mouth up with greenies and coffee, burned my lips. Greenies is slang for dexedrine. It's another form of speed. I came back and the first thing you know, boom. I was in the groove, but I was scared prior to. I didn't know what to do, you know. Uh, the fear of success and failure was, was what I was dealing with. That's why I gravitated to the drugs. I get that. Not the baseball-specific parts, but the crushing pressure to do well, to not fuck up, to meet sky-high standards. I know how paralyzing that feels, and I get doing whatever it takes to dull that fear and get unstuck. Take hosting this show, for example. This is a real big girl job with expectations and pressure. There's this constant refrain in the back of my head of don't fuck up, don't fuck up, don't fuck up. So it's tempting to reach for something that'll get rid of that pit in my stomach just to get me going again. It's hard not to wonder if I could just hit delete on the anxiety, who knows what I could do. I've played enough sports to know that the difference between um, letting fear bother you a little bit and letting fear not bother you at all can be the difference between winning and losing, you know? This is Donnell Alexander. He's the journalist who interviewed Doc for Weekend America all those years ago. Donnell says they had a wide-ranging conversation, not just about this one game, but they talked more deeply about drugs and baseball and the difficulties that Doc faced as a Black man in the major leagues in the 60s and 70s. He came across very early on as a radical, you know? And it's interesting how he made it work within the confines of baseball and how he didn't make it work as well. Doc wasn't just dealing with the pressures of performing. He was playing in the big leagues, which had been integrated for only about 20 years. It was the age of desegregation, civil rights, voting rights, but also the age of Nixon and law and order. Doc would get letters that said things like, you were brought up in a tar paper shack and you black son of a bitch. Some real 1970s vintage racism. One time, a police officer wouldn't let Doc into a Cincinnati ballpark after he forgot his ID. Doc got angry, and the officer pulled a gun on him, decided to holster it, and maced him instead. Another time, while pitching a minor league game in North Carolina, a crowd of white fans taunted him with shouts of the N-word. Doc responded by striking out the last batter, then holding his middle finger in the air and slowly turning in a circle. And the racism extended beyond baseball fans to team management. They would question how he wore his hair, commenting on his braids, asking him not to wear curlers on the field. They said I couldn't wear the curlers because it wasn't part of the uniform code. 
So I went and got a, a size 10 and a half hat and took the two curlers off of here, 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 and here, and you couldn't see them. Doc was always looking for ways to fight back. And Donnell says this activism set him apart. Well, he was known as the Muhammad Ali of baseball amongst Black players. You know, we're so used to the generation of LeBron James and outspoken Black athletes. In the 70s, there just weren't those athletes. Doc fought for players' rights to free agency. He challenged the press and the league on matters of race, saying they'd never start two Black men as pitchers in the All-Star game. And then, that year, they did. And he was one of them. Doc Ellis talked about these things when no one dared do it. You know, there was, a, there was a backlash that he suffered. Who knows how these things might have exacerbated his uh, addiction issues. A deep-seated fear of failure steeped in a culture of racism. That's a lot to deal with. People who were close to Doc later in life pretty much confirmed Donnell's suspicions about the way all these things are connected to Doc's addiction issues. Doc's friend, Dr. Rubin, remembers him talking about it. He felt that there was racism, it was rampant, and it did affect who he was and how he was, certainly the kind of contracts he got and what have you. So a lot of the, uh, I think, chemical dependency issues that he developed were related to that. In the spring of 1980, when Doc quit baseball, he realized he needed help. So that fall, he enrolled in a 40-day substance abuse program in Arizona. Once he got clean, Doc says he had a hard time finding follow-up counseling. He says there just wasn't anyone who had firsthand experience of what he went through. I think he wanted to become a counselor because he wanted to help people. And he, especially professional athletes, he he just, uh, he saw the benefit of what it did for him and he wanted to pass it on. Doc got trained as an alcohol and drug rehabilitation counselor. He was looking for a place to work when his agent connected him with Dr. Rubin, who had just started a new practice that combined medicine, nutrition science, exercise physiology, and behavioral health. In 1982, Dr. Rubin hired Doc at the clinic, and he was a really good counselor. The most impressive thing about Doc in this capacity was that you couldn't lie to him. <laughs> Nobody could fool him. Nobody. Everybody would try but they couldn't do it. And the reason why they couldn't do it is because he was one of them. So he knew. And uh, it was impressive, I got to admit. Basically, Doc was really good at cutting through the bullshit when he spoke with people struggling with addiction. He was very real and genuine. He couldn't find a better friend and uh, he couldn't find somebody better to have your back when you needed it. He was, uh, I loved him. Doc spent the rest of his life helping others. He worked with professional athletes, troubled youth, and inmates. And Doc says he stayed sober. He went to Alcoholics Anonymous and other group meetings to manage his drug addiction. He would let himself go out to bars to socialize, but he would order a mocktail, what he dubbed the Doc Cocktail, a mixture of orange juice, pineapple juice, coconut cream, and grenadine. Dr. Rubin thinks Doc's patients also helped him stay on track. 
he had to establish trust in order for them to be responsive to him. If he wouldn't remain sober while he's working with them, it would have it would have been perceived as a betrayal. So I think it did help him stay on the sobriety track. Doc talked about this on the McNeil Lehrer News Hour. During your recovery, what is happening is you're like a child learning to walk again. And uh, what happens is you need the people that are that are recovering. Twenty-eight years after he got sober in 2008, Doc died of complications stemming from chronic liver disease, likely a result of his addiction to alcohol before he got clean. He was 63. It's ironic because his alcohol addiction, it could possibly have been treated with the very drug he casually took before his no-hitter. Research is coming out that LSD, combined with therapy, may be able to treat alcohol addiction and depression. And one of the versions of the speed he was on is now being used to help treat ADHD. We don't know all the details of how Doc recovered, but what seems clear is that he had to step away from baseball to see the difference between what others wanted from him and what he actually wanted for himself. And what he wanted was to help others with the same struggles he went through. He says that was the most meaningful part of his life. Not the high-profile Major League Baseball days, not the famous no-no, but the quiet work of giving back. And there's bravery in that, in leaving the comfort of being validated by the world. Doc left his career, and in the process, he found his calling and himself. Past It is a Spotify original produced by Gimlet and ZSP Media. Next week, we're traveling back to 2004 to revisit the scandal that changed Paris Hilton's life and fame as we know it. I definitely thought that it was Paris's idea, that she did this to herself to become famous. This episode was produced by Sarah Craig and Kinsey Clark. Our associate producers are Julie Carley and Jake Maya Arlo. The supervising producer is Erica Morrison. Editing by Andrea B. Scott, Zach Stewart-Pontier, and Abby Ruzica. Fact-checking by Matthew Brown. Sound design and mixing by Bobby Lord. Original music by Sax Kicks Av, Willie Green, Jay Bless, and Bobby Lord. The theme song is Toko Liana by Coco Co, with music supervision by Liz Fulton. Technical direction by Zach Schmidt. Show art by Elise Harvin and Talia Rockman. The executive producer at ZSP Media is Zach Stewart-Pontier. The executive producer from Gimlet is Abby Ruzica. If you want to know more about the Doc Ellis story, check out No No, a documentary, or the awesome animated film Doc Ellis and the LSD No No. Special thanks to Donnell Alexander, Nelly Allel, Bob Smizek, Jeffrey Radice, James Blagden, Lydia Polgreen, Dan Behar and Clara Sankey, Emily Wiedemann, Liz Stiles, and Nabil Cholumpat. Follow Not Past It Now to listen for free, exclusively on Spotify. And follow me on Twitter. I'm at Simone Polanin. 
Thanks for hanging. See you next week. I used to always tell my first wife, I'm going to be in the big leagues. I ain't going to be home. I'm going to be in the streets. <laughs>